You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, I hope we haven't been out of 1 Peter so long that you've forgotten the message of 1 Peter and how parallel that is to everything that we've been going through in the book of Acts in the last few weeks, particularly in chapters 3 and 4. And although 1 Peter was written some 25 years after the events that occur in Acts chapter 3 and 4, you get a sense if you sort of read those chapters alongside of 1 Peter, you get a sense that the book of 1 Peter could well have been written immediately after the events in chapter 4. Let me give you sort of a flashback of some of Peter's words in 1 Peter. And listen, just ask yourself if you cannot see Peter himself living out these very words in Acts 3 and 4. If you respect people who practice what they preach, then you've got to love Peter. Because Peter does exactly everything that he tells us to do. He's a model of the very thing that he prescribes. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, For what credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Does that sound like Peter's situation? He's done right, and he's suffering for it. Why is Peter and John, why have Peter and John been suffering? Why were they arrested? Why did they spend a night in jail? Why were they hauled in before the Sanhedrin and grilled? Why were they threatened and then released? What did they do? Healed a cripple. They did something good. They did good, and now they're suffering for it. And then Peter goes on to say, Christ committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Did Peter do that? Sure he did. Christ is an example to us. How? While he suffered, he didn't revile. He didn't threaten. He didn't say anything evil against the people who were causing him suffering. He simply entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. And Peter and John have done the same thing. Brought in on a fabricated charge for a silly thing that they've done, a silly trial, a silly night in jail, and really a silly question, by whose name and power have you done this, hauled into court on those charges, having done nothing wrong. Peter and John don't revile, they don't threaten, they don't say, I demand my rights, I'm going to do this, and you're going to face this, and I'm going to do this to you, and they don't do any of that. What does he do? They just entrust themselves to him who judges righteously. First Peter chapter 3, do you remember these words? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And then Peter says this, Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Was Peter ready with an answer in Acts chapter 3 and 4? Sure he was. Well, he was ready with the whole gospel, wasn't he? And he just let him have it. 
He was ready to give a defense. He was ready to give an answer. And he did so with meekness and with gentleness. He told them what the truth was. They had crucified an innocent man. God had raised that man from the dead. And now they had brought them in there basically for healing a cripple. And they had no grounds to hold him. And Peter and John are forthright with that. And they tell them that whole story. And then they are straightforward with the Gospel. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And it's basically an appeal for them to place their faith in Christ. And Peter has given all of that with meekness and with gentleness. And there's another little indication, sort of a little bit of advice that Peter gives to us in 1 Peter chapter 5. Do you remember these words? Chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. What is that? That's prayer. You know what Peter and John did? They suffered for doing right. They did so without reviling or cursing or threatening in return. He was ready with an answer. He gave it with meekness and with gentleness. And then once they have released them, and you remember the council released them because they had no basis upon which to punish them. They've done a good deed and healed a cripple. And they know, and they've turned the tables on the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin knows we have no reason to punish these men as much as they would like to punish them. They would love to have had something they could nail them on, but they had nothing. So all they do is threaten them and then release them. And what do they do? They go back to their companions, and Luke records that they have a prayer meeting. They cast all their anxiety on the Lord, knowing that the Lord cares for them. So we're in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to pick up the storyline in verse 23. What is it that you do when the opposition comes against you and begins to thwart the advance of the gospel or the spread of God's word? What is it that you do when somebody is your adversary and they come and threaten you with something? When the enemy whispers into our minds, if you keep talking like that, people are going to think you're crazy. Everybody knows that nobody likes Christians, and if you keep putting that poster on your wall at work or bring your Bible to work in your lunchbox, if you continue to talk about Christ, people are going to threaten your job, people are going to threaten your welfare. When the enemy comes against us with those kind of threats, what do we do? There's only one thing that a God-fearing, Spirit-led believer will do. They go to the Lord in prayer. And that's what the early church does. And we're going to notice three things this morning. First, I want you to notice the reason for their prayer. Verse 23, Luke says, When they had been released, they went to their own, or their own companions, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. After they've been released, the apostles return to wherever their companions are gathered. And I don't think that this is the entire church because its numbers exceed over 5,000 at this time. I think the apostles went back with the other apostles and perhaps some who were in leadership and close to them. And they report what's going on. And Peter gives them the rundown. Here's what the chief priest said to me. Here's how he threatened us. And here's what we said back to him. And then when they realized they couldn't threaten, they could not punish us, They threatened us further and they let us go. And then when they all hear that they've been threatened and they all hear that the opposition is is sort of gaining momentum and gathering some steam, they know what's ahead of them. And so what do they do? They lift their voice, Luke says, in one accord. Now that phrase there is an indication of the unity that existed in the early church. 
They didn't have everybody praying for different things, everybody on their own agenda, doing their own thing. They came together and in one accord, with one voice, with one heart, with one purpose, with one mind, they lift their voice to the Lord and they're all praying in unison the very same thing. They're all praying for the very same thing. You know, that's something that persecution does to a church that few other things will do. It unifies the church. Persecution unifies the church. You go to another country where they're persecuted, in Sudan or China or some other country over the east where they are suffering for the sake of the gospel, and you'll find something. You'll find the churches over there are unified. They're unified around the truth. They understand this is what God has revealed, and this is what we're standing for, and this is where we're at, and these are the non-negotiables, and they all come together. When you're persecuted, you don't pay attention to all these little petty, insignificant things that tend to disrupt the unity of a church. When you're persecuted, you don't care what color the hymnals are. You don't care what color the carpet is. When you're persecuted, you don't care if everybody that you wanted to came up and said hello to you on Sunday. It doesn't bother you that somebody might have snubbed you or forgot to wave to you or say hi to you. When you're persecuted, you don't care whether you're first or last in the potluck line, or if that selfish person in front of you took the last barbecued meatball. When you're persecuted, you don't care about any of those things. All of the petty, insignificant, trifling things that suck up our energy and drain our resources and consume our thoughts and divide our churches, all of those things don't even show up on the radar screen. Because all that's on the radar screen is preserving the truth in our life. And so they were unified. There was unity there. And the apostles pray. And they follow a biblical example in praying. And they had lots of biblical examples of people who faced opposition and they prayed. Luke chapter 6 says that the religious leaders began to seethe at Jesus with rage and they started plotting what it is that they were going to do to Him. And the very next verse says Jesus that night went up on the mountain and He spent all night in prayer. Why did he spend all night in prayer? The opposition was gaining momentum. And so he did what the Spirit led him to do. Went up on the mountain and he spent all night in prayer. Do you remember Nehemiah? Sanballat and Tobiah hired counselors to thwart his purpose in rebuilding the wall. And those men came to him and they said, quick, run into the temple and hide and get out of there because people are going to kill you. And the intention was to threaten Nehemiah and fear him into running inside the temple and and running for his life. And they're trying to thwart the building of the wall. What does Nehemiah do to that? He says, I'm not going to be scared of anything. And he goes to the Lord and he prays. Nehemiah chapter 6. Do you remember Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem? After uh, Rabshakeh had gathered his troops and besieged the city and they're outside the wall and all the people who are defending the city are up on top of the wall. Hezekiah is inside the city and Rabshakeh is saying, all of the gods of all of the other peoples have not been, ever to, have been able to deliver their people from my hand and your God cannot, will not, and shall not deliver you. You're going to eat your own dung inside the city gates. And Hezekiah heard this and what did he do? It says he tore his clothes and he went up to the house of God to pray. What else do you do when you're threatened? Later on, uh, the king, Sennacherib of Assyria, sent messengers to Hezekiah with letters saying, we're going to come against you. God's not going to deliver you. We're going to conquer you. You can't stand in our way. Your God is impotent, weak, and useless. And what did Hezekiah do? He took those letters, he went into the temple, and he spread them out before the Lord, and he says, Lord, look what they're saying about you. 
Guard your own name. These are the threats that they're giving to us. So God, you deliver us. You comfort us. You strengthen us. You're our fortress and our rock. What else do you do when you're threatened? You gotta pray. Nothing else to do. And the Psalms are filled, filled with prayers of people who in the face of their enemies and their opposition just went to the Lord. Psalm 121. Who is a help, a rock like our God? My eyes look up to the mountains and where comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. And so they pray for comfort and strength and deliverance. Why is it that they're praying? They're praying because they've been threatened. They haven't been beaten. They haven't been scourged. They haven't been thrown into prisons yet. There has been no Christian martyr yet. All they have done is received threats. And these apostles, before the opposition even gains enough momentum to martyr somebody, they gather together and with one voice, they lift their hearts to the Lord. And then second, I want you to notice the requests of their prayer. Luke gives to this an account as if he were there. He wasn't there, but he could have got this easily from one of the other apostles. Verse 24, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, I want you to stop right there with that word. It's a significant word. O Lord. Now, you say, what's so significant about the word Lord? That occurs so many times in Scriptures over and over and over again. You're right, the English word Lord does occur all over in Scripture. But this is a translation of a very unique Greek word that means Lord. Usually when you run across the word Lord in the New Testament, it's a translation of Kyrios for Lord. This is not that. This is a word that is only used of God five times in all of the New Testament. It's very unique. It doesn't occur very often. But here the apostles and the disciples preface their prayer by saying, O Lord, and the word they use is the Greek word despotes, from which we get our English word, what? Despot. O Master. It was used of a slave owner. It was used of somebody in a position of unchallengeable authority. A despot. It doesn't carry all of the negative connotations that you and I connect to that English word despot. It just simply was used of somebody who had no higher, no, no higher position of authority, no higher position of control and sovereignty and prominence than this individual. He was the despot. He's the master, the ruler, the sovereign, the Lord. He reigns. And the very first thing they do is remind themselves of to whom they are praying. And the fact that they use this word is significant because they have just left the council where they have denied the rightful authority of the council to contradict God's law. Do you remember that? The council said, we command you no longer to teach and to preach in this name. And what did Peter and John say? Whether it's right in your sight for us to obey you rather than God, you be the judge. But as for us, we cannot stop speaking about the things we have seen and heard. And so what they've just done is left the council and said, we recognize your authority. And we have to submit to that if we can, but we can't. Because there is one whose authority is greater and higher and more all-controlling than yours. It is our despotess, our Lord, our Sovereign, our Ruler, our Maker, our Creator. We are all His servants. And that word reminds us of something, friends. It reminds us that all of us are God's servants. And that He is the Ruler and the Sovereign. And that you and I at best are just bond servants. 
He's the despotist. Now that single word sets the tone for this whole prayer. It sets the, the attitude, the tone for everything that follows. I want you to notice how three times in this passage, in this prayer, the word servants is used. In verse 25, they refer to David as God's servant. In verse 27, they refer to Jesus as your holy servant. In verse 29, they refer to themselves as servants. You see, they're about to face suffering. They're about to face some persecution. So what do they confess verbally at the outset of that? Lord, whatever you want is fine with us. You are the ruler. And we are servants. How often we get that backwards, huh? When we pray, we think that we've got God doing our bidding, and doing our thing, and working on our behalf. And they put themselves right in their rightful position, right at the outset. They say, you are the sovereign. And whatever you will, we will take. We will absorb. We will live with. Because you are the despotist. That is how the early church conceived of God. That he was sovereign. That he was the ruler. That he was the absolute master. And they were just simply servants. Look at how they conceive of God. First of all, they affirm that he is the God of creation. Look at verse 24. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. All they're doing is verbalizing what the Old Testament taught, that God in six literal days created all things, the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. He is the Maker. He is the Creator. He did not use death. He did not use struggle. He did not use disease. He did not use evolution. He, in six literal days, created all things. He spoke them into existence. Now, if you're facing suffering and if you're facing persecution, the very first thing you want to know is how powerful your God is. And that's what they remind themselves of. Our God is the God of creation. He spoke and it was. He said the words and the limitless galaxies leapt into existence. Now, how comforting is that? So is there anything too difficult for our God? He's the God of creation. He's powerful enough to deliver me from anything that I'm going through. My God is not impotent. He's not powerless. He's not insipid. He's not weak. He's not bantered about by the whims and, of, and wills of men. My God is able to do anything that He wills to do, and He does it. As the psalmist said, our God is in the heavens, and He does what He pleases. And Nebuchadnezzar said, there is nobody who can ward off His hand or say to Him, what hast thou done? Because He does it. He's the God of creation. Second thing that they acknowledge about God and affirm about Him is that He's the God of revelation. Not only is He the God of creation, but also of revelation. In verse 25, who, and this is a description of our God, who by the mouth of the Holy Spirit, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, and then he goes on to quote Psalm 2. Our God not only created everything, He made it, but our God also has revealed Himself in His Word. By the mouth of David, by the Holy Spirit, God spoke. And what he's doing is affirming the dual authorship of the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 2 in particular. It was the Spirit of God and it was David. Who wrote Psalm 2? Question for the day. 
Who wrote Psalm 2? Was it David or was it the Spirit? It was both. David wrote it, and as he wrote it, the Spirit of God spoke through the mouth and through the pen of David when he said, and he goes on to quote Psalm 2. Let me give you some background for Psalm 2, because we read it in our Scripture reading. David there is describing a scene in which all of the powers that be, all of the rulers, all of the kings, all of the kingdoms, all of the peoples, rebel against God's rule, rebel against God's law, and rebel against God's Holy One, His Anointed One, His Chosen One. And they set their faces against God and they rage against Him. Why? Because they're in rebellion to God. In verse 3 of Psalm 2, the people say, let us tear off their fetters and cast their chains from us. That's a reference to what they perceive to be God's fetters and God's chains, which is simply God's will and His law. And the people, all of the powers that be, rebel against that. And what does God do in verse 4 of Psalm 2? It says, our God sits in the heavens and He what? He laughs. I love that picture. Everybody stomping and screaming and, and gathering together with the single purpose of overthrowing God's rule. And what does God do? He tears out his hair and says, Oh no, I can never violate the free will of men. How am I gonna, what am I gonna do in my creation? It's all going to pot. No. He just laughs. <laughs> I can just hear it. it. Says he scoffs at them. Why? All of these people align together against God to overthrow his reign. To thwart his will. And how can he laugh? Because he is the despotist. He does what he does. He does what he wills. And nobody can thwart it. All of the powers that be cannot thwart it. You cannot stop God from accomplishing his will. And even if all of the nations and all of the peoples and all of the kings and all of the rulers on this planet that we have today were to gather themselves together and align on this one single purpose of overthrowing the rule of God, they can't do it. He just scoffs. He laughs. Because he's the ruler. And he accomplishes his will in the midst of that. And the psalm mentions four groups of people. And you'll see how Peter quotes Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles, that's the first group, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples, number two, devise futile things, the kings of the earth, that's number three, took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against your Christ and against your anointed one. The kings, the rulers, the peoples, and the Gentiles. And then Peter goes on to describe modern day, in his day, modern day people who he thought that psalm referred to. Look at verse 27. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, he was the king, and Pontius Pilate, he was the ruler, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So Peter sees the people who played out the crucifixion of Christ as being the very ones who specifically were foretold by David. The kings, the rulers, the peoples, and the Gentiles all gathered together. They met in Jerusalem, as it were, with the purpose of going against God's anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God sits in the heavens and He scoffs. Why? Because not only is He the God of creation, He is the God of revelation. And third, I want you to notice something. 
He's the God of history. Look at verse 28. These people gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. I love that verse. Those people gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. What did they do? They met in Jerusalem and they conspired. They gathered together money and they paid off an informant. They took opportunity at that informant's information to catch Jesus, quote-unquote, unaware, in a garden. They arrested him. They drug him through six trials. They put him out to be crucified. They scourged him. They drove nails in his hands and his feet, put a spear into his side, a crown of thorns on his head, false accusation above the cross. They mocked him, cast lots for his clothing. And they did what? What his hand and what his purpose predestined to occur. The word predestined means to determine beforehand. God determined beforehand that he was going to deliver up his son. And he did not just plan to say, not just say, I'm going to plan a sacrifice. He predestined who it would be, when it would be, where it would be, who would be responsible for it, how it would come to pass, who would be betrayed, how he would be betrayed, how much money he would be betrayed for. He predestined that not a bone should be broken, that a spear would be thrust into his side. He predetermined all of those things. God does not plan the ends and then leave the means up to chance. He plans the ends and He orchestrates the means. And God knew all of that. Why? Because He has a crystal ball and He's a good prognosticator? No. God knows it because He wrote it. He determined beforehand. This is how it's going to be. It's going to play out exactly like this. And everything they did, every last detail, was exactly what the plan and the purpose of God predestined to occur. Listen, what God predetermines, God brings to pass. He does not predetermine something or predestine something to happen and then sit back and rub his hands and say, I hope this all works out the way I've decided it should. He doesn't do that. Why? He is the despotist. He does it. And it's not that he sits back and he's so weak and insipid that he can't accomplish his will. And he's not so weak and insipid that he hopes we'll cooperate with him to accomplish his will. Even though all the peoples gather together and stand against the Lord and His anointed, God's will will be done because He sits in the heavens and He laughs and He scoffs at them. And they did exactly what He predetermined should happen. Every last detail fulfilled His will. And they did it and everything happened according to plan. This is not the first time that we've been exposed to this idea of God predestining something in the book of Acts. Do you remember Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost? He said, this man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. His crucifixion and everything about it was predetermined. Acts chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He is thus fulfilled. What God announced in eternity past and determined in eternity past, He has thus brought to fulfillment. Not only is He the God of creation and revelation, but He's the God of history. He wrote it before it ever started. He wrote history before it ever started. He's bringing it to pass. And everything is unfolding. And everything that He has determined to happen will happen. And listen, friends, this is why you can have confidence in prayer. Some people say, why pray then? It's just the opposite. This is why we have confidence in prayer. 
Because we know that God has ordained the means as well as the end. We know that everything is working out according to plan. And He answers our prayer and He works through our actions and He uses us and our prayers to accomplish His end. And so we pray. And that's what they had to remind themselves of. They're facing opposition. But listen, when you're facing opposition, if you can come to the point where you understand God is not up in heaven biting His fingernails hoping everything works out okay. That's not your God. When you can understand that the whole thing is written in eternity past, it's all working out to His glory. He has guaranteed that. And when you can rest in that, then you can stop biting your fingernails and simply commit your circumstances into the hands of the despotists, the sovereign God who scoffs at opposition and He laughs at those who oppose Him. Why? Herod, Pilate, the peoples, the Gentiles, they all gathered in Jerusalem with one purpose, to kill Christ. And God scoffed. That's exactly what Hebrew determined to happen. And He worked out His plan according to His will. Now I want you to notice the requests that they ask of the Lord. Verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats. That seems kind of almost superfluous to pray that, doesn't it? Lord, did you notice what they said? Oh, of course he notices what they said. What are they doing? They're just casting their anxieties on the Lord. Here's the situation. Sometimes it it's, feels good to get those things off your chest. I know that he knows what I'm going through. I know that he knows what I'm dealing with. But you just speak it out. Lord, take note of their threats. You, you heard what they said. Don't let that pass by. You keep that in mind. And, and Lord, that's your responsibility, their threats. See, I don't have to worry about their threats. You don't have to worry about their threats. We're just going to put that in whose hand? The despotist, the one who scoffs in heavens at the threats. And just say, Lord, you take note of it. That's your business. That's your responsibility. You take care of that. Now, all they're doing is what Hezekiah did when he received those letters. Spread the letters out in the temple and said, Lord, look what he's saying about you how weak you are and insipid you are and useless you are and unable to defend us you are. Lord, take note of what He said. That's what they're doing with these men. Lord, take note of their threats. Second thing they ask for is boldness. And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Now, the, the thing is that the council already noticed what? The confidence with which Peter and John spoke. Back in the beginning of chapter 4, at the end of, the ser- at the end of Peter's sermon to those powerful people. They notice how confident they were. And now they gather together and say, Lord, grant us confidence. Grant us boldness. Grant us strength. Grant that we may speak the things that you want us to speak and not back down in the face of this opposition and this threat. Lord, just give me the ability to articulate rightly how it is and to be straightforward about the truth. And the third thing they ask is that God would continue with the hand to heal and the signs and wonders to take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. That's in verse 30. They know that there's more miraculous to come and they know that that miraculous things are going to cause them troubles in the future, and they do. And so they pray, God, you take note of their threats, give to us boldness to say it as it is, and we pray that you would continue to use us as your instruments to do your will, which for the apostles was to confirm their word with signs and wonders. And that's what they pray. And notice what they don't pray. They don't pray, Lord, cause all of their threats to come to nothing. 
Lord, judge those people who have threatened us. They don't pray that. They don't pray, Lord, grant us free exercise of religion so that the gospel may go forth. Lord, grant us equal rights. They don't pray for any of that. They don't pray to avoid suffering. They don't pray to avoid persecution. What do they pray for? Lord, you know what's happening? You take care of it. Give us boldness and continue to use us as your vessels to accomplish your will. That's the essence of their prayer. And that's it. In Western Christianity in America, we've bought into the lie that the only way the gospel can advance is if we have free exercise of religion. That's a lie. One of the things that plagues us is the free exercise of religion. The church would be a lot different in this country if we were persecuted. They don't care about that. They don't pray, Lord, deliver us from the threats. They're just like Paul. Paul writing from prison said, Pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that in the opening of my mouth I may speak as I ought to speak. Not pray for my deliverance. Pray that I would get out of prison. Pray for this and comfort and for that. None of that. Not concerned about his own circumstances, his own situations. They don't pray for comfort. They don't pray for freedom from affliction. What do they pray for? That the Word may go forth and that God would grant them the ability to speak powerfully, clearly, and straightforward about the Gospel. And then they just leave themselves and the results into the hand of the despotist, the sovereign God who accomplishes His purposes. Those are the requests of the prayer. Third thing I want you to notice is the results. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. There was some something akin to an earthquake that happened, and it obviously wasn't an area-wide earthquake because it wasn't the whole city that was shaken, but rather this place where they were gathered together was shaken. Something like the sound of the rushing wind on the day of Pentecost. There was something visible, physical, audible that they heard as the house that they were in, the place where they were gathered shook like an earthquake. And verse 31 says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Not all the time does God answer prayers like that. Have you noticed that? How many of you have had an answer to a prayer where when you got done praying, your house and nothing else was shaken and you were filled with the Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness? God doesn't always answer like that. May I say God... Seldom, if ever, and I'd almost say never any more answers like that. That's just not the way God answers prayer. But on this occasion, in at this period, that's what God did. He demonstrated His presence with them in a very physical way that they knew our God is with us. Confirmed again His will for them. And He shook that place, and Luke says they left there, and they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, why is it that God answered that prayer? Because they convinced Him to do something for them? No. They came to God as He is, as they were, confessed their servanthood, their dependence, and their utter nothingness before Him, and they asked that He would do what they knew was His will, and that is to give them boldness to speak even in the midst of opposition. And they left themselves, their circumstances, and the results into the hands of their God. And they were content with that. They prayed for His will. And God answered it. Now let me ask you a question. When the enemy comes against you, and when opposition hits you, what's your first response? Do you take comfort in your friends, your family, your entertainment, and escapism? Or do you come to the Lord? 
Cast all your anxiety upon Him, for He cares for you. Do you seek after friendly counsel? Do you seek after some doctor or some social worker's help? Do you seek after somebody else, whoever it may be other than God? Or do you just come to the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. This is who I am. I know who you are. I'm content with whatever it is that you've put into my hands. And Lord, I'm just praying for the things that I know are your will. Just give me the boldness. Give me the strength. Give me the confidence to do this. And grant that you would just use me as your vessel. And if you would do so, I would be honored. Is that what you pray? And if you pray, and when you pray, what do you pray for? you pray for your own comfort? Do you pray for the advance of the Word? Or do you pray for the advance of your own little world? Do you pray for security and comfort and deliverance? Or do you pray that God would just use you in the spite of all the suffering and all the adversity that He as the Master determines to send your way? This is the pattern for us, friends. This is what we do. We go to the Lord in prayer, confess our dependence and our need on Him, and we leave the results into His hands. So let's do that now. Our Father, we thank You for who You are. You are the Creator. You are the God who has revealed Yourself in the Scriptures and revealed Yourself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that You hear our prayers and that You're attendant to that. We thank You, Father, that You grant to us in the midst of our suffering not only Your presence and Your comfort, but also, Father, the grace to speak as we ought and to open our mouths and to be bold. And we pray that You would do that to us, that You would grant us that boldness, that articulateness, that confidence in Your truth, that we would be messengers to spread Your Word and to represent the name of Christ wherever we're at and in whatever we're doing. We trust You for this and leave the results into Your hands and thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.